What's going on, guys? This is the Dirt Bike Channel Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Brotherson. Today, I've got a special treat because we're going to bring on a very special guest. I'm going to talk trail maintenance today because trails are awesome and maintenance is awesome as well. I try to do a little bit of trail maintenance every time I'm out, but today I'm going to talk to somebody who does it full time, who has done this for a long, long time. I think 13 summers he has done this full time. I'm going to bring on Justin Blackstead. He's a trail crew supervisor in the Sawtooth National Forest in the Ketchum Ranger District. That's in Idaho. Ketchum, Idaho is awesome. I've ridden up there. Some of you guys might have been able to do some of the trails up there too and uh, super stoked. So without further ado, let's go ahead and call Justin in and see if we can chat with him. Hello, is it Justin? Hey, Justin. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, sounds good to me. Okay, so I wanted to thank Justin Blackstead. Like I mentioned just a second ago, he is a trail crew supervisor in uh, the Sawtooth National Forest in the Ketchum Ranger District. Did I get that right, Justin? Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. So I'm super glad that you reached out to me because trail maintenance is something that is um, important to me, and I think it's important to a lot of people, and we, some of us take it for granted, you know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, so it, I figured it'd be really good to get some information from the horse's mouth, if as it were, and, yeah. uh, and just see kind of what, see what stories you have to tell. I know we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about, about, you know, what you do and, and you're talking about your crew and the trail cleaning standards and the things that you're looking for, draining water and rerouting trails and stuff. I've got like kind of an outline here that we, we went over previously. So I'm super excited to get into that. But before we do yeah. that, can you maybe just give us a little bit of background of, you know, your, your moto background, how you got into moto and how you got into dirt bikes and a little bit of a history there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, six years old, got my first dirt bike XR 50 under the Christmas tree, just like everybody wants. Um, rode all through my young life. And then I was 18 years old and I was on a dirt bike ride, like a club ride. And this guy goes, Hey, uh, you want to do this for a summer and run a chainsaw? And I was like, Oh, that sounds pretty good. I was framing houses at the time. And, uh, the next summer signed up with Idaho department of parks and rec as a trail ranger. Uh, kind of a funny story. The job interview was, uh, I met this guy Todd at the trailhead and I had this clapped out XR 400 that they parked and supplied me with a big chainsaw on the back and all the gas and stuff. And I was coming off of a fully dialed CRF 250 X. Um, and we went on this pretty gnarly ride and I just remember suffering and getting to the enemy. Like there's no way they're going to hire me <laughs> and, uh, got a week call a week later and, started my career as a trail ranger for four years and um yeah from there moved on to the mccall ranger district which if anyone's ridden there it's pretty gnarly trails um and uh yeah it was just kind of a career move for me to get a little more involved in all aspects of trail instead of the you know log out brush drain stuff that we were doing with parks and rec and doing more of the reroutes and layout and design stuff and that worked really well and was able to work my way into getting a supervisor position here in ketchum and so, yeah, now running a crew here in Ketchum and we take trails super serious and it's fun. Wow. So I, I mentioned this on the phone yesterday when we were talking, I I'm just kind of scratching the surface of the terrain that there is in Idaho and for single track, like Alpine mountain, single track, I think Idaho is, is Mecca, you know, for us as dirt bikers. And it's, there's just so, there's so many different trails. The trail systems are so vast. And then 
Um, the thing that I just kind of was beside myself with when I thought about it last summer when we were there, we're out in the middle of nowhere in these trails. And we were actually in some of the trails in your district, um, but uh, other trails like in White Cloud and some different areas there along the saw or around the Sawtooth. Um, I'm like, we are so far away from civilization. And I can tell these trails don't get ridden a lot because of you know, how you can just tell how much a trail is ridden, right? When you're on it. But I'm like, look at all these logs that are cut out. And I specifically remember um, stopping at one point with my buddies, with Tyler and Sam. And I'm like, can you believe how many logs have been cut out of this trail this year? And there hasn't been that many dirt bikers that have come through. And so I just wanted to thank you for the work that you and your crew is doing, plus the crews that are around you in that area. It's just, it's just absolutely phenomenal. I feel like Idaho is probably doing this better than Utah is. And I hope we can get into some of that, of, of why that is and, and how that works, yep. you know, today in, in our conversations, but just thank you so much. There's so much that you guys are doing and it's, it's blessing the lives of, you know, hundreds or thousands of people, hopefully thousands of people. You know, it's something I don't take lightly, you know, catch them the resort community and, you know, our trails being in phenomenal shape just goes directly to our local economy. So I preach that really hard with our uh, crew members as they come in that, you know, the work we're doing is, beyond keeping a trail open it's keeping the moto bike shop in town it's keeping the mountain bike shop in town open you know if there's not good trails there's no reason for someone to come here in the summer absolutely absolutely so let's talk a little bit about your crew you've got uh seven crew members plus yourself right and and how much how many trail like how many miles of trail are you guys you know maintaining yeah we're just over 430 miles here um and yeah so it's a lot um, but as I say, we're pretty well outfitted, you know, we got great crew members. They come from all over the country every year. Um, they make a decent wage. A lot of them are college students. So they come here for that middle part of the summer. Um, got them, most of them are starting May 10th this year and they make a decent wage, get cheap housing and get a live and catch them and crush it. Yeah. That's cool. And so didn't you say though, that of those 430 miles of trail, only about half of them are motorized. So the other half, uh, are for hikers, mountain bikers, uh, equestrians, horses, what, what else? Is that pretty yeah, much covered? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, you know, we are unique here where pretty much all of our trails is open to some sort of wheel traffic, whether it be a mountain bike or a dirt bike. So kind of our clearing standards and how we do things are always geared towards wheel traffic here. Oh, love it. And when you're out there doing this maintenance, you guys are on dirt bikes, right? You're on a dirt bike all summer long, right? Uh, so with the trail ranger job, it was hundred percent dirt bikes every day, uh, eight days on six days off and traveling around the state and doing log out. Now I'm probably on a dirt bike two days a week. Um, use them for all sorts of things, not just chainsaws. Like I'll hook a generator on the back of a TTR 230 with a big rack and haul it into a work site. Um, a lot of the crew members are hiking or whatever. It's hard to hire someone with that skill set. Right. You know, to just out of the people we get, it's hard to find someone that is a solid dirt biker and a solid worker um, that wants to kind of pursue this job. So, yeah. Because all the solid dirt bikers are already just on their dirt bikes. They don't want to come. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. Volunteers are huge here. It's a large part of our program. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, that is, yeah. that is so awesome. So what does the season kind of look like for, uh, well, maybe, so your, your district there in Ketchum, is yours one of the bigger dist- districts in Idaho or is it one of the smaller ones? How does it fit there? 
I'd say we're on the larger size of having eight crew members for the amount of mileage we have. Um, you know, I think last year it was like a really small percentage of our budget actually came from the forest service. And then we take that money and we leverage it into grants and whatever. Yeah. 23% of our budget was actually directly from the forest here. And then 50% of it came from grants from IDPR, uh, working with our local nonprofit, the Wood River Trails Coalition, and then some uh, regional funding we applied for for youth crews. So um, it takes a lot of work to build a program into what we have here, um, you know, with leveraging funds and trying to make it happen. If we were to do nothing when it comes to grants or partnerships, we would probably have a two-person trail crew, me and someone else. So that's maybe what a lot of these other districts have. I, I'm so interested to maybe reach out to some of your colleagues that are down here in Utah and, and get some information from them and, and see uh, how their programs are run. Um, yeah. But something else that is kind of interesting to me is, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the, um, well, some, some of the money that comes into your program, and it's a trickle-down effect from the top down, comes from, from the stickers, right? Like registration stickers. Am I right on that? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, gosh, this guy explained it really well the other day. It's recreational trails program is kind of our bread and butter for trail funding. Uh Um, and that comes off of the federal gas tax. So they take all the gas tax and they figure like, don't quote me on the numbers, but like half a percent of that's going into dirt bikes, ATVs and UTVs. Um, and so then that money is set aside for trail related projects um, recreation projects. Uh, so then that money goes from the government to here in Idaho, it goes to IDPR. And then we apply for grants for that money through IDPR. And then, um, basically the stickers are that money goes, I think it's like 90% of it goes directly to boots on the ground and tools in the dirt here in Idaho. So, yeah, that's cool. So what does the season look like for you? If, if you broke it down, into like spring, summer, fall, uh, what are the types of things that you guys are are doing in those different times of the year? Yeah. So right now in the spring, like we're ramping up, getting everyone on, uh, getting a little bit of training in, just getting everyone up to speed. Uh, and then starting two weeks from Monday, we'll just be full on doing, we'll be running around with chainsaws, just trying to get everything open and seeing kind of how the trails wintered. Um, looking at what projects came up over the winter and the spring runoff that we need to address. Um, and then moving into the summer, we kind of get into our heavy maintenance. So we kind of got a three-year rotation of trails, uh, starting with, you know, our front country trails that we're going to do heavy maintenance on every single year. They're the ones that get trampled. Um, then we'll move into kind of our two-year trails or the ones that are, you know, popular, but maybe not as popular as those super front country trails. Then our three-year trails are the ones that are really out there, don't see a lot of use. But basically, at the end of the day, every trail is going to get touched every three years. So we'll get them all. Um, you know, with that, you know, there's some of those lighter-use trails that are the crew is super big fans of doing. So we'll usually do those ones every year. Um, and then we'll start kind of doing our big reroutes. So we'll partner with Idaho Conservation Corps, Montana, Montana Conservation Corps, or, uh, you know, the Student Conservation Association. So we'll have 20 people or so out on a big reroute project and nail that through. We're building bridges. That core of the summer is the heavy project work. 
Um, then moving into the fall, a lot of the crew members will go back to school. So the crew will slim down to three or four, um, typically. And that's when we'll start making plans for next season. And then I'm a huge proponent of putting trails to bed. And we do that here every year. So we'll go through and all the drains that we've built over the years, we'll clean them out. So that when that spring runoff comes, it's they're fresh and ready to get the water off the trail. So, wow. So I love the idea of putting a trail to bed. And so, man, so many of the things that you just mentioned there give me a lot more context into why I'm seeing what I'm seeing on the trails up there in Idaho. Talk to me a little bit about um, reroutes. How does that process happen just maybe at a high level? Um, yeah. How does it, I mean, does somebody just tell you this trail needs to be rerouted? Like maybe give us the bullet points of, of how that goes yeah. about. So in my position, that's kind of, you know, I'm the boots on the ground guy seeing what I'm seeing. Um, so what I typically like to do is try to fix the trail and its current alignment as much as possible. I mean, we all have these, you know, I have trails that I have distinct memories of and what they feel like and how they ride. And then you come back the next year and it's a giant reroute and you kind of feel like you lost something. Um, so I do everything I can here to fix the trail and its current alignment. So that'll be putting in drains, filling in ruts. Um, but if it goes two or three years and it's just a consistent problem and it's getting worse and worse, that's where I'll start looking at my reroutes. Um, and that's not something we take lightly. It's a big project, a lot of money to do it. So we take it serious. Um, and it's expensive, man. So we'll start out with, um, I'll go out and kind of get a flag line in. And when I'm flagging in a trail, there's so many, books and stuff out there on flagging and trails and they get really good. And, but if we all follow the same book, all the trails are going to ride the same, right? So okay. kind of, you got to get creative with it. Um, so I'll flag it out and then we'll do a NEPA process on it where a bunch of specialists come and look at it make sure that we're not affecting any other resource. And then, uh, go into the budget process of applying for grants for it. And then finally the build process. So, that's a, that's a real uh, short version of what goes into a reroute. How long does that take to get approval? Is this a is this a full year generally, or is it or you can you do this maybe in a couple of months? Uh, yeah, man, the timelines are hard. It really depends on the length of the reroute and the resource affected. Okay. It could be something that doesn't take hardly any time, and I just talk to a few people in the office, and they're like, "Oh yeah, hundred yard reroute there, no big deal, go for it." Or you know, my last big project was, you know, it took two years of planning and then two years of building. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we noticed one, especially like right up by Stanley, which is probably just right outside of your district where the, the, excuse me, the trail went through this basic, you know, this marsh or whatever. Um, yeah. and they did a reroute where they made, they built a bridge in the middle of nowhere. They built a bridge out so we could get across the Creek and bypass the marsh and it made a ton of sense to me because I got my drone out and I'm, I just shot a shot from up, up above and I saw, okay, so they cut out a little bit of the trail, which, which took out this one water crossing, but the water crossing was actually pretty dang dangerous because it got so freaking deep in the middle, you could lose your bike and guys were swamping their bikes there multiple times. I knew of at least one or two bikes that had been swamped there. And then I took the drone up and looked at the, looked at what had been done and I went, okay, I get it. And that's actually better. We lost like a quarter mile of trail, but now it's sustainable where we're not damaging the landscape in there and we're not swamping bikes. And so I, you know, that's the funny part about this is 
if you've got we don't we don't want to be just like rerouting trails to make them easier right we we want to do it no, for a specific reason not be not I to am, make it easier right yeah i am so against sanitizing trails so when i'm doing layout on like a reroute the first thing i'll do is i'll walk the entire hillside and try to find anything that i can add you know if it's a technical trail already i want to try to add safe technical features to it i don't just want to put a line through the dirt that's wavy. Like I want to find those rocks, find those, you know, off camber sections that are going to be challenging, find those tight trees to go between. Oh, I yeah. love, I love hearing that. See that we need more of this. We need more Justin's out there where it's like, look, we're not, we're not just screwing around here. If I'm going to have to reroute this, I want it to be interesting and, and then make it, you know, kind of customize that to the level of the trail that we're already on. If we're on like a, you know, a fast flowing trail and we reroute it, we're not going to just turn this, maybe this one section. I mean, it's just creative. I love the creative part of it. You're not looking to change the overall tone of the trail. If it's technical, you want to keep it technical. If it's faster and flowing, you want to kind of maintain more of that vibe. Is that what you're telling me? Exactly. Yeah. And it's totally an art and a science because, you know, water is the worst thing that can happen to a trail. When you think about it, um, how I explain it to my crew members is in the spring or when it rains super hard, all that water's coming off the hillside and it's getting sucked up by trees and plants and, you know, hitting roots and stuff and kind of slowing its velocity. And the first hard flat thing it hits is the trail. And then it wants to rip down the trail. And that's where we get cutting of trails and we get erosion. So when it comes to fixing trails, you know, drains at the top. When we do reroutes, it's all about water. How do we keep the water off the trail? See, when yeah. you when you said the worst thing about trail, uh, the worst thing that gets onto trails, I thought you were going to say side by sides, but but you. you <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're it's steep enough here that we don't have to worry about them too much. <sighs> We've been lucky here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully you remain lucky. And it's true. If you make the trail technical enough on steep enough side hills, then that uh, that keeps a lot of people away. But um, yep. so, oh, I, I love that. I love that. And then putting the trails to bed. What what a novel idea. I mean, this is the, probably yep. there's a lot of other trail guys like you that think about this stuff. But I'm that's just fascinating to me. So <laughs> it's, it's a really fun time of the year. You know, you're usually pretty beat down by then and. We kind of just all go out with our tools individually. I'm kind of tired of being around each other too, and it's a good time to just go get some solo time and clean drains. And I'm yeah. sure that so. Before we move on to you know our next kind of outline here, our next bullet point, do you still just love being able? Do you still get centered and connected when you're out there in the wilderness, in the backcountry alone? Is that is that why you're still doing this? Because I I have to guess you're probably not you know rolling in the dough you're you, you know you work with no, the forest service so that mean i can kind of i can kind of extrapolate maybe what that might pay in a year do you get the extra you know fulfillment out of just being able to be out there in the in the environments that you love and kind of get recharged yeah i think you know this is going on my 14th summer doing this and um, i think the things that really drive me is for one you know the crew and working with these you know college kids and um, you know, teaching them these cool life skills and showing them these rad places is, you know, and they're a lot of guys are from back east or wherever, and it's just pretty mind blowing for them. And then, uh, you know, when I go out and ride on the weekends, and I see all the people at the trailhead, and just thinking about like, whoa, all those people are here to have a good time on something I worked on. It's really uh, rewarding to me. Yeah, you get that fulfillment. I. It's funny that you say that because I 
I grew up on a farm. I, well, I didn't grow up on the farm, but I, we had, my grandpa had a farm in the family and I ended up doing a fair amount of farm work, not a crazy amount as I was growing up. And, and I kind of learned, you know, at the end of the day, you clear off a field or whatever, and you you're beat and you hated it in the middle of the day. But at the end of the day, when the sun goes down and everything starts to cool, um, and the dew starts to maybe fall just a little bit, you get to see that haystack. And there's this sense of accomplishment. When I moved into my, you know, careers that I've had recently, they were like, you know, white collar type stuff. And it's like the, at the end of the day, I just had like a count of how many emails I sent, how many calls I did, how many products I sold, but there was not that fulfillment, you know, at the end of the day to look back and be like, I did that, you know? And so the money, the money was good, but the actual fulfillment, I was, it was really lacking. And so what you're talking about is at the end of the week or the end of the work week or whatever it is, you know, you come back to the trails, you see people going on those things and you get to see, I did this with my two hands or with my crew. And there's, there's some really awesome, you know, feelings that you get from that. So I love that. Yeah, no, it's, it's what keeps me going. Yeah. So maybe let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, cause we talked about trail clearing standards before on, on the phone the other day. And, uh, there yeah. were some things that really kind of shocked me. Um, and I, I'm like, wait, can you repeat what you just said? And then you repeated it for me and it made more sense. So maybe let's talk yeah. a little bit about those, about those standards. I know you sent me like a maintenance guideline and some different things, which are really interesting, uh, documents, yeah. but let's kind of jump into those trail clearing standards that you abide by. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I think dirt bikers, like our main thing that we can help people with is log out, right? Like we can travel more efficiently and with a little more weight than any other user type. Um, and so that's where I lean on my local guys here is they'll do a lot of the log out for us. Um, the kind of the general terms here, the trail tread, which is the actual dirt part that everyone thinks of as the trail, right? And then we've got our uh, trail prism, which is the, or trail way, some people call it, which is the entire bench of the trail. So you usually have like, let's say a 12 inch section of dirt, and then you're going to have eight inches of grass or whatever on either side of that on the bench. And then you got your back slope, obviously don't need to explain that. And then you got the hill going off the backside there, um, towards the ground. So what I like to see people do is we got that cut bank, just like you'd see on a highway, right? And that's where we like excavated the end of the hill. Um, when we cut logs, like if we can try to get them six feet on the uphill side and two to three feet on the downhill side, that creates like a really good path to travel through. Um, and just remember like everything we're working on here is multi-use and think about the guy on the horse with a string of pack mules and all the panniers and everything. Like let's make them wide enough so everyone can enjoy the trail. Yeah. Yeah. So then you've got this, you've got this, you know, narrow trail base, but then when you're cutting out the brush, you, you leave, you cut a pretty wide swath. How far did you say on each side of the center line of the trail that it has to be cut out? You know, the standard is from the center line of the trail, uh, four feet in either direction. So eight feet wide. Um, what I kind of, I've kind of gone away from that because I think on the high side of the trail, the cut bank side, we want them cut back maybe six feet. And then on the low side, we're doing two to three feet. Okay. Uh, that's kind of how we have been rolling here and it's worked out really well. But then you're yeah. talking about a 10 foot, cause I'm looking at the, I'm looking at kind of the diagram here. I don't know if yeah. I can, I'll hold this up. I don't know if some of the YouTube people will be able to see this, 
but you're it's got like a ten foot tall um spec oh, yeah. to That's it, right? The height for like the branches height. that are overhead. So you gotta think of a tall guy on a horse, you know, he's gonna be hitting his head. Um so we can take branches ten feet tall if it's feasible. Usually you're gonna need that's kind of for my crew more. Um, cause we'll take pole saws then and cut stuff. And I don't think a lot of volunteers are going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the wits and stuff. Um, and what, what's the most, is it the most work to cut out the logs or is it the most work to kind of brush cut and, <laughs> you know, go through and cut out those brushing. white swaths? I'd say the brushing oh, is man. a lot of work, I'm, right? Br- brushing is, yeah, you just got to enjoy it. <laughs> and it's, it's rough, man. The roughest days I've had is when it's, 90 plus degrees out and you're brushing this godforsaken trail in the middle of nowhere that's where your mind starts playing tricks like does anyone even use this trail why am i putting all this effort in you know you know they do but yeah those are the those are the hard days when you're just brushing all day i can think of some spots on the mountain home district and those of you listening that have been there um yeah those are hard days Yeah. Yeah. No, I can think of a trail down here that we have along the Wasatch Front. It's actually up Provo Canyon, and it's one of the more technical trails that we have in the area. And what it really desperately needs on one of the sections is just people to come through and brush, brush cut. Um, yeah. And just because it's, it's grown in, it doesn't get ridden enough. And so there's scrub oak and different brush that are just right on the sides of the trail, and it's tearing your arms off the entire <laughs> way. Um, and so we need to figure out, I need to figure out how we can get some volunteers up there and just knock it out in a couple of days. But, um, yeah, I mean, brushing is heinous sometimes, but I mean, as far as things we can do to a trail to make them more enjoyable, like brushing is way up there. I mean, a well-brushed trail when you ride it, it's so much fun. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the difference in some, some ways between a trail that's rideable and a trail that's unrideable, you know? especially yeah. in, it depends on, I guess, what the foliage is right in that area. But, um, so how, what about information? Like how, is there a way that you can kind of get information from riders or local people in the area to figure out, I mean, how do you know if, you know, there's a problem on XYZ trail? How does, how do people get that information to you? What, what does that look like? So for me, um, we work through our local nonprofit, the Wood River Trails Coalition, and they're awesome. Actually, the executive director there, Sarah, worked on my crew for three years before she took that job. So I'm pretty lucky in that we have a really good relationship outside of work and at work. Um, So a lot of information will get filtered through her. And then I kind of got, you know, being a writer, I know a lot of the writers in the area. So I'll get texts from buddies or people all the time like hey there's a tree down on this trail or hey this section's super bowling out um yeah i would do you ever do you ever just respond do you ever just respond back and be like i can teach you how to carry a chainsaw on your bike then and then we wouldn't be having this conversation you would have already cut it out no i mean i would say 90 percent of the time i'm getting texts from dirt bikers letting me know what they've cleared out oh which is awesome yeah because then i can adjust my day right and you know it might drive my crew members nuts sometimes where we're just brushing and drains and they're getting the glory. We're clearing the logs, but that's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, you know, I suggest people reach out to their local, you know, trail machine association or trails club, whatever's in your area. Um, and then, you know, reach out to your land manager as well. And, you know, Hey, we're thinking about doing some work or whatever and kind of work through them and see what you can come up with. It's awesome. I, I love think- Go ahead. Go ahead. 
I think, you know, for me being a dirt biker and been doing this for a while, um, when it comes to that, like public perception of dirt biking, like sometimes I'll go ride a trail that I know is cleared, but I'll still strap the saw on because it's at a really popular trailhead. And I think just our perception is so enhanced when people see us with saws on bikes and know that we're out there improving the trails. I just think it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I have never carried a chainsaw. I was I was under the impression here, and we don't have to get into this. We can I, we can get this in a, another day. But I was under the impression that I needed to be chainsaw certified, and I had to have CPR courses and all this stuff, and an insurance certificate, and all these things in order to carry a chainsaw. And I think I had a little bit of misinformation there. But um, I love the idea um, of us being us as dirt bikers being part of the solution. I carry a saw with me. If I don't have a, like a, a handsaw, I carry a nice handsaw with me. If I don't have one in my pack, which I generally do, it's in my pack right now. We've got somebody in the group that has a saw and it only takes just a second. Like if, if a, if a medium sized log or whatever branch falls down in the trail, it really only takes a second for you to whip out your handsaw and cut that thing down. I mean, I'm talking like even branches as blogs as big as up to six inches, you know, in diameter, you can cut that out with a handsaw in under a minute, you know, and just kind of then get that off the side of the trail and it's safer for people and it's more enjoyable. And then we're not cutting around the trail all too often. And I'm sure you've seen this a thousand times where it's like a four inch log fell into the trail and it's not, it's, it's kind of on an angle. And then all of a sudden people are going around it cutting in around the trail, they won't take six seconds to drag it off the trail. And I think if we as dirt bikers, we need to be better at that. We need to be part of the solution and take those few minutes and get that thing cut out and cleared out. Just take responsibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see people all the time buying, you know, pointless billet parts for their bike <laughs> and then they don't have a saw. <laughs> and, you know, it's, um, for me, you know, a silky big boy is an awesome, awesome option. I'm, sho- um, I'm like showing a silky, silky big boy. Way. I'm showing a silky yeah. big boy right now for the YouTube people. So this one yeah, is and then, super massive. And then what else do you like? Uh, big boys, what a lot of us carry around here, the Katana boys, even bigger than that. Um, kind of on our further out backcountry itches, like we've got 18 inch logs, no problem with that one. Um, yeah, those are the two that I have the most experience with. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I slipped over to grab my I've got a the silky gomboy, which it, for me okay. this is this is awesome. It's a two hundred and forty millimeter blade. Obviously it's a curved blade folding saw. And I did a I yeah. did a little kind of impromptu review on this thing. For me, this is like perfect because it fits in my pack and I've got that silky big boy, which is even a little bigger. Um, but the point yeah. is for for under a hundred bucks, you can have a bad A folding saw. <laughs> And that can do a lot of things. You know, if you're, if you're going out there to clear the logs at the beginning of the season, you know, you're going to need a chainsaw. And, and if we can get more guys out there with chainsaws, that's great. But this saw that I'm holding up right here weighs nearly nothing and is extremely capable to, to just, you know, help be part of the solution. So I love that. So, yeah, absolutely. So as far as, as far as like in, in Ketchum and the area, um, it sounds like you've got a quite a you got a quite a few volunteers and and people that are out there just just doing 
doing the work? Are you able to kind of leverage some of the work that they're doing to, you know, get more grants or things like that? How, how does that work? Yeah. So, um, with the Idaho Parks and Rec, when we put in for these grants, they usually want a non-federal match. Um, so not federal money that we can match the grant with. Um, so we'll use volunteer time through the Wood River Trail Coalition for that. Um, it's at seven twenty-five an hour, and they put on a bunch of volunteer events. And uh, yeah, we'll track hours from those events and use it to leverage our funds for sure. That's cool. That's cool. So kind of getting back to drains. Um, what does that what What does that look like? So so you said that the water. At it, especially in the runoff, this is kind of the the big killer for the trails. So, yeah. did you do you have to go to school to figure this out? Do you have to have an engineer on your group, or are you that guy that figures out how we get the water where we need to? I think you know it comes with trial and error. I mean, some of the things I did when I was eighteen, I look back at and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> you know. I think uh, one trail that me and uh, Mikey worked on. I think, you know, we did so many drains in a short section. It was not good. You know, it just ruined the riding experience of that trail. But we were 18 years old. We didn't know any better. We were told to build drains. Um, but then, like, as you get better and you get good mentors, like Todd was a great mentor for me, um, you know, you get out there and figure it out. And the key when we're getting water off the trail is, you know, just because you're going up the trail and all of a sudden there's water, you don't dig a drain right there. Go find out where the water's coming from. Walk the whole section of trail a couple times and think, where can I put a drain that's going to be the most effective? Um, you know, and then for us, you know, there's, even in my career, there's been like these, like we went from, they were taking like old conveyor belts and sandwiching them between a two, two by 12s and putting those in the trail at an angle. So that way, and you know, it just comes back to me to rolling grade dips, just long drawn out drains that roll well on wheel traffic. Um, I'm not a big fan of the log water bars because they're so slippery when you hit your wheel on them. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, it depends a lot on soil type. You know, the things we're doing here in Ketchum may not work somewhere else. But, um, you know, over the last four seasons here, five seasons, I've got it pretty dialed in on what works in this soil type. Yeah. So you're not just putting in the automatic... Uh jumps. I see what I, what I see sometimes is that it's like, Hey, we're going to put in a drain here. And really what they did is just create these jumps in the trail. And then I'm like, I wonder if we just made this trail more dangerous because now we've got like nine jumps in a row in the, in a space of a quarter mile. And, and everyone now is just ripping up and down the trails. Cause they're like, I'm going to catch air on these things. So is that, is that something that you try to avoid or it just depends on the system or the, you know, the, the environment? I would say with, you know, the rolling grade dips we're building do tend to lead towards airtime. Um, <laughs> but it's either that or something that's so abrupt, you're going to be pinching tires. You know, if I build a rock water bar, you know, that, that also could lead to a different experience that we may not want. So maybe, maybe um, you just create these like three foot rock ledges in, you know, and that, and that could be in a feature, you know, we could, we could do something <laughs> like that. Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. We, we could try them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, when it comes down to, you know, drains work and they've been working and the ones we have here, you know, are six, seven years old. We clean them every fall and, uh, you know, we've saved a lot of miles of trail with them that we didn't have to reroute and that's important. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that leads into our next topic is just reroute. So what you're telling me is if the trail is properly maintained and it gets the love that it needs, then maybe the likelihood of needing to do a reroute is, is diminished a little bit. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Yeah. So like when I'm building drains, um, you know, we'll take and figure out where we want it. And then it's usually in a place that has a rut, right? that's why we build the drain there because it's starting to rut. So we'll, as we're digging the drain out from the low side, we'll pull all that dirt actually back uphill, fill in the rut, tamp it down. Um, when we're building trails and maintaining trails, we want a little bit of outslope to them. So that way when that water's coming down, it can sheet across the trail and off the trail instead of run down the trail. So we'll do a lot of berm removal on the outside and, you know, get that, outslope back to the where we want it um and yeah we can usually save a trail but you know the hardest thing on a trail is a fire right because then all of a sudden we don't have any trees soaking up the water we don't have any grasses slowing it down so if we have you know on ketchum we had a big fire in a few years ago and uh then we had a massive rain event and we just got destroyed and it was a hectic couple years to rebuild everything but yeah because the water doesn't slow down it doesn't get absorbed as quickly because it's just you know freewheeling down the side of these mountain faces and so it just creates a lot more um a lot bigger problem as far as the soil erosion when it hits the trails that's what's happening yeah exactly yeah there's nothing nothing to slow it down so in let's talk about like if a reroute has been determined um, and we have to do that. We, we briefly talked about it a little bit. Um, but let's, yeah. let's kind of get, let's kind of walk through that maybe a little bit more in depth. Um, just, okay. be, just before we talk about that, I'll just share one of my experiences that I had, you know, I shared it with you the other day on the phone. There's this one, you know, section of trail that's up here in American Fork Canyon, up down kind of where I live in Utah along the Wasatch Front. And there was this one section of trail that just kind of went up the ridge and it was harder for some people because it would, it was steep and it was rocky and, and it would, it kind of got blown out a lot. And then there was a reroute that happened and they brought in a trail cat and they, they basically added on, I'm not sure, a couple miles of trail. And when I first rode that section, I was like, oh man, this is cut in too wide. Cause you know, they went through with the trail cat, which is four feet wide. And then look at how wide the brush is and and I wasn't entirely sure. I gave that one year and then suddenly my whole tune changed because then I was like, wait a second, this is beautiful. The foliage has grown back in and we got another mile or two, I'm not exactly sure, of beautiful epic trail along this already good trail. And I just felt like, you know what? That was a better thing than just going straight up, you know, the spine of that of that deal. So you know, trail rerouting, I guess if it's done rewrite or if it's done right can be pretty awesome. So let's talk a little bit about more about yeah. how that process happens. You know, the costs that are involved, the time that's involved and some of your, you know, objective objectives when doing this. Yeah. So I'll start out with, okay, we've made the decision. We're going to reroute this trail. I'll hike everywhere around both sides, up and down, um, making GPS points of, features I want to go to, rocks, whatever, overlooks even, you know, it's like, hey, there's a sweet view if we go over this ridge, you know, looking at kind of all those values that I can add to it. Um, so I'll get kind of a rough flag line. And then um, I'll go through with little pin flags and like a clinometer, which measures grade. 
and I'll have a guy with a stick. I use a skiing probe, um, avalanche probe for it and have it marked at zero for me. And I'll go through and we'll start mapping out the like exact line that we want. And then that's where you're kind of starting to feel that flow a little bit and seeing how that trail is going to move. Um, and then we'll be making sure we're adding grade reversals. So let's say the trail is going up at a 10% um, grade. You know, every 100 feet or so, we're going to want to taper that off and even go downhill just a little bit for maybe 10, 15, 20 feet and then start bringing it back up to that 10%. So it's really gradual. Oh, yeah. So um, so, so that, way, it, that way, the water doesn't just have a straight yeah. line beeline down the whole thing and ruin your trail. Exactly. So we're, we're building the trail to be sustainable for the long run. And you got to think about it, like most of the trails we ride were not built to be, you know, moto trails or, you know, they were built by horses and packers and miners and whatever, you know, yeah. um, at least here. So they were trying to get from point A to point B as quick as possible. And, so, um, and you're, yeah, you're so, not, you're deciding we want to take the scenic route and the more inventive route, yeah. imaginative route. I want to get over by this rock. I want to get over by this Vista. So there's a different goal in mind than just point A to point B now. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, like, you know, if it's a trail, that's a connector trail that people use to get to other places. Like I don't want to take a one mile trail and make it four miles long. You know, do you see what I mean? Like, yeah, we still want to get there, but, um, so yeah, so once we kind of got that pin flag lined in, what I'll do is I'll hire a conservation core plus my crew. So I'll have, you know, 15, 20 people out there. Um, we do a lot of hand-built trail here. I like how that process goes for us. Um, so we'll dig the trail out and we're digging into the mountain. So we're not like doing, we're doing full bench. So we're not trying to like stack dirt or rocks on the outside edge. We're trying to dig into the mountain. 36 inches for us is kind of the number I like. Uh, mostly because of the Pulaski's 36 inches long, so I can lay it on the ground and know that we're wide enough. Um, and then uh, once we get that built in, we'll go through with rakes and kind of rake everything out. Um, you know, I prefer if we can, you know, build a trail in the fall. It's kind of what I like to do, you know, midsummer, fall, and then try to keep that closed for the winter. That way the snow has a time to get in there and pack it down really good. So we're not just tearing it up with moon dust when it's freshly built. Um, and then, yeah, open it up the next spring. Wow. And so as far, as far as like costs and things, I mean, obviously it's going to, and maybe we can't get into the specifics of that, but this sounds like it's fairly expensive because it's, it's pretty labor intensive. And then maybe there's a lot of different, like maybe if, you know, the different equipment that you use, I mean, what what does that look like? Like what are, what are the general costs to make a trail? Um, gosh, they're so variable, but I would say for contracting, it's around $6 a foot if we contract it out to someone. Um, and then for our crew and we're probably down to like four, three or $4 a foot with a ICC SCA crew. I'd have to look at the numbers, but I figure it's somewhere around there. Um, so yeah. Yeah, we did a trail, a mountain bike trail that turned out being super awesome with Titus Trails out of Haley here. Um, and so we did, he built it with too many excavators, and then we followed it up with an ICC crew for finish work. And then my crew did all the layout and logout. Um, I think we were at a hundred grand for five miles of new trail. 
Wow. And so I just, I just did the math on that uh, while you were talking here. I just take $6 yeah. a foot and I times it by one mile, which is 5,281 feet. And I come up with just shy of $32,000 to make one mile of trail. Yeah. And that's for contractor prices. Um, you know, if you had private land and wanted, and that they're doing all the layout and design, they're doing all the log out, they're doing the build and the finish. Um, so they're pretty steep, you know, um, we can kind of work with that and get that price down quite a bit when we're doing it with our crew. You know, for if it's just my eight person crew putting in, you know, a half a mile of trail, we can do that in three or four weeks. And, uh, you know, it's not too, that's, that's cheap, cheap then. Yeah. We're just paying our cost. So I think that's why it's important to keep trail crews around too, is, you know, if we were to contract all this out, it'd be terribly expensive. How many, how many different crews, like the, you talk about a private contractor. I mm-hmm. didn't even know this existed. So there are private contracting, uh, groups that you can, or I mean, private groups that you can go out there and contract to build, build trails once or do the whole process. It sounds like you're talking about maybe even the flag yeah. line and the, uh, and the, the trail planning people and the environmentalist people that come in and say, is it going through, you know, are we, uh, doing the right things here, all of that can be done and contracted out. Yeah. Um, we don't do it, uh, on our district very much. Like that one project was unique because it was, uh, kind of outside my skill level when it came to building like mountain bike berms and whatnot, you know, that's not me. Yeah. Um, so we contracted that part out, but yeah, man, the contracting world's kind of blown up. There's professional trail builders association. Uh, like I said, Titus trails here out of Haley's amazing. Um, and, uh, yeah, they kind of travel all over a lot of ski resort work, building downhill mountain bike trails and whatnot. Um, yeah, yeah. Trails, trails is big. Dude, you just, a lot of money in trails. You just (laughs) blew my mind because I'm sitting there thinking like, maybe this is one of the way, I mean, if, cause if you could, obviously one of the problems with, I feel like creating new trails is nobody knows how to do it. Nobody knows how to go through all the steps that you just outlined or, and we're, and that we're still talking about. So if there are people that are listening to this podcast and they, they're like, Hey, look, I'm going to get together with my group of riders in our area and we're going to get one of these trail building crews and we're going to come get this thing put in. That's, that's something that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. And I mean, obviously the caveat is permission from the landowners, right? Uh, whether it's <laughs> private or federal, like, you got to go through those hoops first. But, sure. But even, but, but even uh, then, yeah. if you've got a group that's willing to do that and they know how to get that stuff done, that's a hundred million miles closer to getting it done than what, you know, I would know how to do. If I'm, if I know, Hey, I can go contact this trail building crew and they're going to find out if it's possible and they're, and we're going to work with them on the lines and, and then we've just got to fund it, you know, that could open up some additional possibilities. Yeah. So. And I think, I think it's more of, um, yeah, and this part's kind of sticky for me, not my best suit, but it's more of working with the land manager to yeah. get the trail going, you know, a club or whatever, working with the land manager and getting it going. And then once the land manager secures the funding and then hires the trail crew is kind of how that would go. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So tell me what a travel management objective is. <laughs> okay. So that's kind of our, uh, that's our prescription for a trail. So every trail has a TMO um, and it goes through, you know, the clearing widths, the 
tread woods, the maximum grade, the height of protrusions. It's like this document for each trail that is basically what we look at before we go out and work on a trail. Um, specifically, like if I'm building a bridge, I need to know, you know, is this what width is the bridge is supposed to be on this trail? You know. So, so yeah. and each trail has its own TMO then. That's correct. Yep. And so, are you you're writing these TMOs for each trail? I mean, or they are have they already existed? Or you, I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, are you they, cataloging this stuff, or you, how does that look? Yeah, they've already existed, um, but I can make changes to them, you know, over time, and have to get approved by people higher up the chain than me if I want to make a change to a TMO. But um, yeah, they they're there, and they're kind of how we track. So then, at the end of the season, I'll take all the work we did put it into this program called Infra and they'll, uh, you know, it's how the, the big government keeps track of me and what we've done, if you will. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So basically you're out there, you're trying to be is make the trails as fun as possible. You're using science, you're using clinometers, and then you're also have this, you know, sense of, you know, how technical do we want this? Do we want this to be fast and flowing? Do we want it to be challenging? And does it fit in with the other trails that are connecting to it? Um, sounds like it's an art and a science. And I just, I love that part of it. And I love that we have people out there that are taking it seriously instead of just like point A to point B. So that's super cool. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's, uh, I don't know what else I would do at this point. <laughs> it's kind of all I've done. So, yeah. Well, what uh, we need, what we need you to do is we need you to create the gospel of Justin and start and, and, in, and getting, and, and maybe it's, and maybe I just need to get plugged in with the, with the people around, you know, my area, but I am just hoping and praying that we can get more of this type of a thing happening down in here in Utah. And again, I apologize if you, if you're here in Utah and you're working, uh, this same type of job as Justin here's my email. It's Kyle at dirt bike channel. I want to hear from you <laughs> and I want to become friends <laughs> with you because we, we want to, we want to do this. So let's talk about getting involved, Justin. So, yeah. um, you know, there's people all over the country. Uh, so we're in fact all over the world as we're, as we're talking here, you are in this, you know, really subset of the world here. It's this awesome place up there, um, in Ketchum and, and surrounding areas. Um, but how do people get more involved? Like, what do you suggest people do and, and how can we as dirt bikers get more involved and be part of the solution, um, from, from your standpoint, like what are some of the things you think about? You know, I think the clubs are awesome. Um, and you know, as you get involved with clubs, you know, make it what you want it, you know, get in there and, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Get in and take care of it and be involved with it. Um, but I would look at getting involved at kind of like a local state and national level. Um, if you can like locally get involved with your club statewide, you know, we have the Idaho trail machine association here and then nationally, if it's sharetrails.org, blue ribbon coalition, you know, that type of thing. Um, you can kind of get like a good input on kind of all the levels if you're engaged in them. Yeah. Yeah. Some, you know, here's, here's a concept that maybe we can riff on for just a little bit. Um, it was, it was kind of in the outline that we, that we wrote down here. One of the thing, or you mostly wrote down here. One of the things you said is no one rides for free. So (laughs) 
Um, obviously, these are public lands, and here in the Western United States, we have a lot of public public land. And um, mm-hmm. you know, some people think, well, it's free; I don't have to pay here. They're like, I like. Some guys might be like, hey, I'm going to go to the moto track, and of course, I'm going to pay my entry fee for that night, and and it's all good. Yeah. And then they're thinking, well, I'm just going to go out to the desert or into the, you know, the forest and I get to ride for free there. What did you mean when you said no one rides for free? Those stickers, man, they're so important. And I just really want to press how important it is to buy the sticker. Um, The registration sticker for Idaho, right? Yeah, the registration sticker is, I mean, that is what makes my crew happen every year. Um, You know, without those stickers and those funds, you know, we're not going to have a trails program. Like I said, I'd be down to two people if grants weren't available through IDPR. Um, so yeah, buy the sticker. No one rides for free. <laughs> and you know, it's such a cheap, I think in Idaho, it started at like 10 bucks and for the sticker in the seventies and it's like $12 now. And it's so cheap. And just to have that vote almost that when you buy that sticker is important. Is there, and this and this maybe isn't an approved topic, but is there a way that people could donate directly to their, you know, either, either your ranger district to go directly into that trail fund? Or is there a way for people to get, you know, just like private money infusion into your program or other programs around there? Are you aware of a, a thing like that? You know, because obviously we, we want yeah. people to get the stickers, but let's say some guy is listening to this and he's like, I freaking love Justin. I love what they're doing in his area. I want to send 50 bucks to help fund his program this year. Is that a possibility? Yeah. So, um, Wood River Trails Coalition is, so, I don't know, those of you that are skiers have heard of, uh, Avalanche Centers and a lot of Avalanche Centers have what they call like a Friends of the Avalanche Center, which is the nonprofit that helps fund that crew. So what we got going here with Wood River Trails Coalition is we have a collection agreement with them. So they raise money every year and pay for one of my crew members for the season, as well as tools and stuff that may be hard to get through the government. Um, so I'm able to call up Sarah and be like, hey, I kind of want to buy these safety glasses for my crew. I can't buy them with my government credit card and she'll buy them for us. You see what I mean there? Yeah. Um, so it's a collection agreement agreement between us and Wood River Trails Coalition and awesome organization there. All they're about is maintaining our local trails to the best ability possible. Um, and whether it's a dirt bike trail or a mountain bike trail, they're willing and re- ready to help us work on anything. So you said great. it is Wood River, Wood River Trails Coalition? Yep. Okay. And so that's who they would mm-hmm. want to contact and be like, Hey, how can I help with the donation? Yeah. If they, okay. Man, yeah. I, I love this. And what I, what I want, I, again, if you are in Utah and you have a, if you're a, a, you know, a trail crew supervisor like Justin here in Utah, I want to hear from you. Um, e- email me, Kyle at dirtbikechannel.com. Um, cause I, I want to be talking to more Justins out there and figure out, you know, how people do it in different areas and how we, can be part of the solution. I feel really strongly that we need more trails, not less, and we need to put them in the right places so that we're not getting booted, booted off of them. Because the way that I feel, um, and this is, this is just Kyle talking here, 
I talked to riders that built a lot of these trails along the Wasatch Front in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I've talked to them. They've come to me. They've reached out to me, and they've said, yeah, I helped build those trails in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and now I can't ride any of them any longer because we've been kicked off all of those. I'm not even saying that we have to get back onto those trails. What I'm saying is I would love to be able to figure out how we can build more of these trails legally in places where we're not going to get kicked off immediately and then go through, you know, the sustainable, you know, the planning process that Justin has outlined right here so that we can, they can be sustainable, you know, for generations to come. I have been riding dirt bikes for 10 years and I want to ride until I no longer can, and I want my sons to be able to come with me, and I want more adventures, not less. And I believe that if we work together with the right land managers and with uh, the Forest Service, um, we can. There's, we're not damaging the mountain. We we just we need more access into these places, and we need to do it responsibly. And I think that there's a, a way to get that done. So I want to talk to more people like Justin. Justin, I. Did we miss anything? I mean, if if is there no. are there ways people need to get in touch with you, or 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 how can we help? Is there any closing thoughts that you have? You know, I just say that this career has been amazing for me, and you know, if any of you have any young men or women that are interested in doing trail work, um, you know, and they like riding dirt bikes, apply for jobs. Um, you know, there's youth conservation corps for kind of those high school age kids. It's an awesome end to get a taste of it. They're usually five week programs where you're in the backcountry for five weeks. We'll pack you in, you know, dig your face off, earn some grit. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. Um, you know, just, we need more people, young people that want to make a career out of it and keep it going. It's awesome. Well, and you know, I think one of the things that we're missing it feels like we're missing is just the fact that manual labor in our culture, in our society, manual labor is sort of almost looked down upon. And I'm like, we, it it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that there should be, it's, it's a prestigious thing to be able to go out there and give this type of service. And, uh, and you get a lot of fulfillment out of it. Okay. So you're not going to become a millionaire over the summer or over two or three summers, but you get some other advantages that come from that that maybe won't fill your pocketbook, but it'll fill your bucket, right? Your emotional, yeah. your emotional bucket, your self-worth bucket. And I don't think that should be overlooked. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good stuff. Okay. Well, I'm super appreciative. Thank you so much. Hopefully I get a chance to meet you. Uh, hopefully yeah. with all the COVID stuff, I, I'm planning on coming to Idaho a, a few times this year and hopefully we'll be able to um, hook up with you up there as, as we go through um, catch them. And we, we usually try to spend, you know, a few days in the Stanley area and do some of the trails surrounding. Um, if you're listening to this, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to know how to get to some of these places, some of these rides, one of the resources that I have used is Bill Dart. He has some trail maps that are really awesome. I know, uh, Justin and I talked about them. If you go to Bill Dart, if you Google Bill Dart maps, you can get some really cool maps that you can download. How, what are the other places that people should be going to get the the special use maps or the land maps in order for, you know, if they're going to plan a trip in, in your area, is there a website they can go to, to get the right, uh, maps and get the right, you know, restrictions and times things are open and times things are times things are closed. Yeah. So kind of our letter of the law on that is the motor vehicle use maps. Every ranger district should have them. They're free. They're paper maps. I know they're not the best maps. I, 
I definitely know that. But if you can use that map and cross-reference it with a topo, um, it'll just make sure that you're in a legal place and paying attention to seasonal closures is important. So, what, yeah. What's what's the best GPS app that you know of as a dirt biker to uh, navigate some of these trails? Uh, boy, there's a bunch of them. I, I like a Venza because I can have my MVUM and a topo map and a relief shading map all downloaded for the area I'm going to. And then I can cross-reference those really easily. Okay. Um, so that's kind of what I use the most is a Venza. Okay. But I'm curious to see how the new Onyx Off-Road comes along. It'd be cool if they could cross-reference that with the... And it may have it already. I just haven't used it enough. Um, if that had the MVM restrictions for each trail when you clicked on it, that could be a game changer. Yeah, I've downloaded the Onyx uh, app, but I haven't really found any apps that are just blowing my mind. I use Apple, and so and some guys are on Android, and they have some different things, but uh, I'm hoping that the Onyx works a little better. Most of the time, I'm familiar enough with the trails, I don't even pull out my phone, you know, but when we yeah. go to places, you know, out of, you know, you're, you're a six-hour driver, at least five-hour drive from where I'm at, and so we don't get up there a lot, and so when I go to places in your area, that's when I need those, the additional support of, you know, the map features here in Utah. It's like, okay, we, we kind of know where we are. We know where we're going. Yeah. 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 So, but, uh, okay. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I will let you get back to it and, uh, you have a, a great week and let's not let this be the last time we talk. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks Scott. Thanks Justin. Bye. Okay, so that was Justin Blackstead with the with the uh, Sawtooth National Forest in the Ketchum Ranger District. He is a trail he is the trail crew supervisor for that district. Super awesome guy. Obviously, you can hear it in his voice. He's passionate about this stuff. He likes it. He gets it. And the thing that I like probably more than anything is just he's not he's on our side, you know. And we we've got to partner with more people that are on our side. And, and get it and, or, and want to make trails for us, with us, and, and do it the right way. And we don't want to just, you know, cut through a section and take out the challenging parts. We want to actually keep some of that in there and keep them inventive and keep them creative and uh, go with the flow of the trail. Did I just say go with the flow? I think I did. But what I'm talking about is, you know, not changing the flow of this trail. If it's technical, we want to keep it technical. If it's fast and flowing, we want to keep it fast and flowing. And that will go with the flow on this. So big, big thanks to uh, Justin for doing that with us today. Um, yeah, hook me, hook me up with an email if you're doing this same type of work down here in Utah. I want to hear from you. I also would like to hear from you if you're in Idaho or anywhere else in East Coast, whatever. I, I would like to do more podcasts like this. And, uh, and see if we can get some good jives, get some good grooves going for the dirt bikers all over the United States and all over the world, too. I'm focusing more here regionally because it seems to be the ones that I can get to. But, hey, let's see if we can make a difference worldwide. So thanks for listening, guys. If you want to support Dirt Bike Channel, one of the best ways that you can do that is just by using my links for Rocky Mountain ATV and MC.com. Uh, I have the links generally in the show notes, or you can find them on all of my YouTube videos, or you can just go to my website, dirtbikechannel.com. I have the links section up there in the upper right-hand corner. I've got like top picks and different things that I use all the time. You can bookmark any of those links with Rocky Mountain ATV into your browser. So it's super easy. You just go to the browser, click on the bookmark that is you know my link, and then any parts that you purchase there uh, help to support me, and that would be awesome. So... 
I think that's all I've got for you guys. It is, what is it? It's 5.05 p.m. on April the 30th. I'm going to try to get this thing out into podcast land soon, and then I don't know when it'll go up to YouTube, but it'll be sometime shortly after because I think this is valuable information for everyone to know. So share this podcast, rate us and review us, and uh, as always, leave a single track. Thanks. Thanks.